When I was a young reader myself, I was totally obsessed with historical fiction. I devoured stories about kids my age who were living in times and places entirely removed from my own. I was lucky that my school librarian always knew which middle grade historical fiction novels to recommend. One of those books was The Midwife's Apprentice by Karen Cushman. It was published in 1995 and won the Newbery Medal in 1996. Interestingly, I've moved away from historical fiction in my adult reading life. On today's episode, my guests and I swap some theories about why that happened, but we discuss so much more. The Midwife's Apprentice presents readers with a grim reality, a young girl in the Middle Ages who has no name, family, or hope for the future, until she receives only the coldest of welcomes from a mean local midwife named Jane, who allows her to work for her for minimal payment. The girl, who ultimately names herself Alice, learns the basics of midwifery from Jane, but her confidence is very short-lived, and when that falls apart, it leaves her alone again and questioning everything. The Midwife's Apprentice was a beloved book when it was published and presents us with lots of food for thought and discussion all these years later. On this episode, you will hear my guests and I chat about how Karen Cushman is able to write books that are compelling for both kids and adults, why the book reads a bit like a fairy tale, characters as blank slates for identity, the significance of names, and the way we can become desensitized to the adversity that characters like Alice can face in their hero's journeys. We also touch on misogyny, the presentation of child's birth for kids on the page, what motivates characters, failure, and the Anne Shirley model of resilience. My guest today is Chloe Lees. Chloe writes romances reflecting her belief that everyone deserves a love story. Her stories pack a punch of heat, heart, and humor, and often feature characters who are neurodivergent like herself. When not dreaming up her next book, Chloe spends her time wandering in nature, playing soccer, and most happily at home with her family and mischievous cats. Her latest book is called Two Wrongs Make a Right, and she will tell you more about it at the end of this episode. Follow Chloe on Instagram and Twitter at Chloe underscore Lees. If you found your way to SSR from Chloe's community, welcome. I am excited to have you here. You can learn more about the podcast, as well as what happens behind the scenes, by following along on social media. I also share a lot there about my personal reading and my golden retriever, Irving. Check it out at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast and the SSR Book Club. The holidays are just around the corner, and the link in my Instagram bio can be your one-stop shop for all of the gifts you need for the book lovers in your life. There, you'll find links to audiobook credit bundles on Libro.fm, my bookshop.org storefront, and the ridiculously cute Inkwell Threads collection. I partner with these companies because I believe in supporting small, independent businesses whenever possible, and I would love for you to join me. Plus, you can get discounts and support the podcast at no extra cost to you. Again, you can get all of those details at the link in my Instagram bio at SSRPod. Patreon is another great way to support SSR. If you like the work that I do on the podcast, I would really appreciate your contributions. For just a few dollars every month, you will get access to lots and lots of exclusive content. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. You can also get there at the link in my Instagram bio. Episode 223 is brought to you by Kobo. 
Kobo brings everything you love about reading at your local bookstore or cafe to the modern world. Imagine having your favorite bookstore with you wherever you go, or being able to access 6 million titles at all times. Rakuten Kobo is here to make your reading life better. Download the free Kobo app or read through one of their e-readers, shop the always open Kobo e-book store, and easily integrate the power of reading into your everyday. Ready to elevate your reading world? Start reading with Kobo. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Chloe. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. Today we are talking about a Newbery Medal winner, which is always a great sign around here. The book is The Midwife's Apprentice by Karen Cushman, published in 1995, and winner of the Newbery in 1996. I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal history with The Midwife's Apprentice or with Karen Cushman more generally. Did you read her books when you were a kid? I did. I have to do the math. I was about the age that my younger daughter is now. Yeah. So I was, I think, nine or 10 when I started reading her books. And The Midwife's Apprentice wasn't my first, but it was one of my favorites. I also read, what else did I read of hers? Um, Catherine Called Birdie, The Ballad of Lucy Whipple. Mm. Those two and then The Midwife's Apprentice are the ones that I would say stuck with me the most or honestly that I can remember reading. I might have read more. But yeah, I just remember connecting with these spunky, strong girls who don't really have easy lives. And um, I think there was just something about these historical settings of all these books that really translated across time into what I think any young person's feeling when they're moving toward the tween and teen years. And I just really connected with them and I remembered enjoying them deeply. So it was fun to revisit this one. Were you a big reader of historical fiction in general when you were growing up? It was a genre that I, uh, now that I think about it, yeah, I read a lot. I was into those Dear America books. (laughs) I loved um, American Girls. I was just very interested in what got us to where we were, you know, like the world I was trying to make sense of. The irony is now I read very little historical fiction unless it's historical romance now. So it's it's not a genre that's kind of stuck with me as a go-to as I've matured. I, I know so many people love it and I'm sure I'll probably venture back into it again. But yeah, it was a very big, um, a very big genre for me as a young person. I'm kind of fascinated by that because I share your experience. I devoured historical fiction when I was a kid. I read everything, especially historical fiction. 
And I don't know if it was because we grew up in the age of Dear America and American Girl, but I also am not drawn to historical fiction at all as an adult. Um, And I wish that I enjoyed it more because there's so much good stuff out there. And I'm always getting recommendations for historical fiction. And I almost always say like, yes, I'll add it to my TBR, but it always sort of falls to the wayside. So I'm just kind of fascinated. I feel like that's something that a lot of people can relate to. Like, why did we love it so much as kids and not so much now? I've thought about that, you know, as I was just saying, sort of reflecting as we're talking now, I think in part what drew me to it so much as a child was you're learning a lot of history, right? As a young person, you're learning about all these monumental moments, you know, world wars and, you know, major moments and like even our climate and what happened and different, literally like entire populations of living beings being on this world. And you have this sort of, if you didn't already feel it as a child, you have even more so this profound sense of I'm so small in this Mm. very big thing. And I think, you know, when you can read historical fiction as a young person and connect with a young person who lived in a different time, maybe it makes it a little bit more manageable to contemplate or explore or access. Um, And I think too, what's really great about historical fiction is as much as you learn about the time that it's set in, you know, hopefully accurately, um, you are reminded of these fundamental human realities that transcend time. Um, And it's a sort of a meta experience of like, oh, I'm aware. I'm, I'm aware of how I connect with this person, even though they're not here. And I think it's a sort of exercise in learning to love what I love most about books, right? Which is that you can discover something about yourself. You can then connect to someone who might seem on page very different than you. And it's, I think it engenders that hunger to read because, you know, there's limitless possibilities to what you might find accessible or interesting or relatable. I think something about historical fiction is a uniquely affirming genre in that way. Builds good readers. <laughs> Builds good readers. I love that. And I had I was thinking so many thoughts as you were talking and you were you were generating so many interesting ideas on my end. I wonder if part of the reason that kids are drawn so much to historical fiction is because kids maybe are naturally a little bit more empathetic and like maybe spongier, like they're soaking up more of what's around them. And they're able to be a little bit more understanding of people that really don't have a lot in common with them because they're not as caught up in like the particulars of adult day-to-day living. I also wonder if it's just by virtue of the fact that for the most part, when you are a kid reading historical fiction, like The Midwife's Apprentice, you're in a position to be engaging with history on a more regular basis because you're taking history class or social studies class or or however that looks Mm -hmm. in your school. And I don't know if, if this resonates with you at all, but when I was a kid, it very much felt like, you know, if you were a kid that loves language arts and English and reading, you probably also were encouraged to excel in social studies or history. And it was very binary, at least in the 90s, like there were the math and science kids, and then there were the English and history kids. And and I very much fell into the bucket of English and history. And so I think, sadly, as an adult, like I'm, I'm so busy trying to keep up with everything that's happening in our world in 2022, which is so much. That's a tall order. it's, It's a tall order. So I'm not, I'm not paying as much attention to these previous eras that I was so fascinated by when I was a kid. And because I was eating all of that up when I was growing up, 
it just made sense that I would then naturally find my way into a love affair with with historical fiction. Yeah. No, I I I did not in my school there was pretty much equal pressure to be good at everything or like yeah. be stretched across all the things. But I definitely I did find that I believed myself because as a younger child, I was stronger in language arts rather than math and sciences, though I really came to love math and science as I got older. I did find that I felt more confident and intrigued by, okay, social studies, history, this is, this is storytelling. Um, and I think, you know, that awareness really has carried through to me in terms of how I realized the ways I mislearned, <laughs> I was mistaught or, you know, taught selective histories and revisionist histories. Um, so I think there is something really, even if it's unintentional, but if kids grow up with an awareness that, you know, seeing these overlaps in, in language arts, uh, you know, ELA programs and history telling, um, and we see, well, this is, it's all shaped, it's a narrative. So we need to be curious and we need to question it. Um, I think that's that's a good takeaway, even if it's inadvertent. Absolutely. So let's get into the specifics of this piece of historical fiction, The Midwife's Apprentice. And I really loved reading about the Middle Ages when I was a kid. I was oh, me fascinated too. by all things medieval. My parents took me to a Renaissance fair when I was like eight years old, and I thought <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever. And then I grew up and I learned that like, yeah, it was. And then I grew up and I realized like Ren fairs are a whole thing. And I was, you know, just like dropping in on, on this community's big day. Um, yeah, this was probably one of my favorite eras to read about. And I did find while I was researching for our conversation today that because Karen Cushman had written Catherine Called Birdie just before she wrote the Midwife's Apprentice, she already had a lot of the research done, which I thought was interesting yeah. and like such a great exercise in efficiency um, in our writing. For and sure. That's cool. Like, it's okay. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. She'd already done all of this research for Catherine Called Birdie. Yes. And listeners, we, ha we have done an episode about Catherine Called Birdie. So I'll be sure to link that in the show notes for those of you who haven't tuned in yet. And she just added a another category of research for this book, which was, of course, specific to midwifery and childbirth during this period of time. And that leads me to my first sort of big picture question. And it sounds like you're a mom, Chloe. And so I'm curious, like, mm -hmm. I, I think I was struck when I came back to this book. And of course, you know, based on the title that this is a book about midwifery, at least to some extent. And, and I had comments from a few people who saw that I was reading this book on Instagram who, who were like, wait, I forgot that I read this book when I was like six or seven years old yeah. and that I had no idea what I was reading. Yeah. And I, I just wonder like what your thoughts are as somebody who has smaller children at home, who, who has had even smaller children at home. Is this something that was confusing to you also? And, and I'm still kind of working out my thoughts about it. Well, no, because I was, I have always loved babies. I've always like, as long as I can remember, I've been, this is a, a little anecdote. <laughs> so I was so curious about where babies came from, fascinated by them. And I kept bugging my mom and she gave me like, you know, an age appropriate, but generally like 
you know, this is what happens. This is how a baby's made. And then they grow in the baby's belly and the baby grows in the mommy's belly and the baby's born. And like right after, and I just was so happy to finally know to not get like the stork mythical version. I was like, okay, this kind of makes sense. This thing, these babies I love, I know where they come from. This is so cool. Yeah. And then we happened to be at the department store in an elevator <gasps> and with a very pregnant woman. Oh my and gosh. I was, like, <laughs> I was like pregnant belly height. And I just looked up at her and said, I know what you did. <laughs> oh, I'm freaking out. That's an amazing story. <laughs> and thus a romance writer was born. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so I was, I was, to answer your question, I, I don't remember being like phased at all. I, and this is just part of being a neurodivergent person for me. I've realized I am curious and often I kind of gloss over these social cues of like, that's not something you're supposed to be curious about or talk about. I was like, no, I want to know, you know, so I was quite familiar with pregnancy, birth, the general idea of it. Um, and I think I was actually very, as much as this is a story that involves a good bit of talking about midwifery and, and childbirth and stuff and child labor, it also really isn't like, so it wasn't what stuck with me. Like Alice, Alice, it feels so central to me and her journey as a person and just really her, how her relationship with the community shifts throughout so that it wasn't, it wasn't what kind of kept pinging my attention as I read that I remember originally and nor as I was reading this time. Yeah. So I had, I, I relate to what you're saying in some ways because my stepmom is a, is a midwife, is a nurse midwife. And she has been in my life since I was three or four years old. And so by the time this book found its way to me, like I knew what the word midwife meant. Her name also just so happens to be Jane. And I remember thinking Aww. that that was like so cool that this is a book about a midwife named Jane. Of course, this is a much different kind of Jane. Yeah. And my stepmom, I was familiar at least to a certain degree with the vocabulary that we're getting very early on in this book. Mm -hmm. And I think that trying to bring myself back to a young age when I would have read it, I probably read it when I was about seven or eight. And I, and I, of course, was coming back to it now. I was like, okay, I can see how I would probably just gloss over some of these scenes that I now can read as a 32-year-old person and understand a little bit better. Like I'm able to see that some of these scenes are actually pretty intense and scary because I know what's yeah. really happening. And so I kept having to check myself reading it as an adult because I was like, I don't think kids would necessarily get what's going on here. It's almost as though no. Karen Cushman was able to write those scenes on two levels so that kids who don't know the details about child's birth and who don't necessarily need to know the details about child's birth still get a sense of the intensity of the situations, while adult readers who know a little bit more if they happen to be reading along with their children or if they're teachers, like they can also be drawn into what's going on because they like, you know, they can kind of get the wink wink of this is a scary situation. We don't have right. a lot of time. This woman is in pain and fill in all of those other gaps. Yeah, I agree. I think that's great, great middle grade fiction, honestly, yeah. as, as someone who has children who are middle grade readers. Now I can appreciate whether I'm talking about a book themes with one of my daughters, or I read a little bit to one of them. And when I can access it now as an adult, and I can also appreciate what they are accessing. And that's often different. Um, as children, I think that I was thinking about this. It's, it's the first time I've read a whole middle grade novel since becoming a writer of adult fiction oh. myself. And I was really admiring 
and thinking about how hard that is to craft the kind of the level of your vocabulary, the extent of what you assume of your reader and how you engage in a voice that's obviously, you know, Karen Cushman's been so successful is very compelling to children, but also to, to, you know, to adults too, to people of all ages. So I think it's, I think she's very skilled at what she does and it, it comes through in this book in particular. I agree. Okay, everybody. So we have, we have addressed the midwifery of it all. Because <laughs> I got a lot of DMs about that. Like, oh my gosh, I forgot that we read this book about child's birth. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's our take. <laughs> I did find a couple of blogger reviews that were kind of dancing around the fact that like, yeah, you should probably make sure that your kids have a general idea of where babies come from before they read this book. I would agree. But yeah, I think I think we've covered a couple of angles of it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk more about Alice, who is not Alice when we meet her. So much of this book is about identity and and really the tangible importance of a name as like a living, breathing thing. And so we meet our main character and she doesn't have a name. Um, I did want to quote from the introduction to the edition that I had, which was written by another great of children's literature, Lois Lowry. I'm not sure if you had this introduction, Chloe, but Lois writes, It's a truly risky thing for an author to begin a story by describing a protagonist who dreams of nothing, hopes for nothing, and expects nothing. (laughs) And as a writer yourself, I'm I'm sure you would probably have a take on that as well. But that's that's really who this character is when we meet her on page one. And she doesn't ever remember being called anything except for brat. What did you think about those first pages with our heroine? Well, as I remember originally reading it. Well, I have like three perspectives. I have the one that I remember vaguely, which was that I remember identifying with this idea of those low moments in life. When you're a kid and you've been disappointed or the friend group's fallen apart, or I think there's something for kids who are deep feelers, for kids who might be struggling socially. And I definitely went through both of those, um, being a spirited neurodivergent kid who didn't know she was neurodivergent at the time, you know, so I remember relating to this idea of like, okay, this is a down on her luck moment. This is who we're meeting. As a writer, as much as I agree with the, I did not have that intro, but with what you read, I agree from a perspective that it's challenging or maybe uh, what was what what was the descriptor she used? She said it is a truly risky thing. Risky. I think it's probably risky in a sense as a writer because you have a lot of a challenge before you when you have someone who's so little of something. Honestly, like you're not giving your reader a lot. All you have is what they're not, right? But as I think about also what I enjoy as a writer, I love I look at that and I think, wow, what scope for character development? Like she's a blank slate, right? Anything could happen to this character who's literally lying in a dung heap and doesn't even have a name or a history or a self-knowledge except pure survival, right? But then as a reader, I think it can really, it can be a little bit bleak. Like as an, as I was reading it as an adult now, as a mother, I was just like, oh God, I can't. Yeah. I can't think about a kid being in these circumstances. This is really sad. And I had to keep reminding myself like, no, so many good things happen to this character who becomes Alice, right? But it definitely was a little bit more sad and rough for me to start as now a mother, as someone who's more aware of that there are lots of children in the world who live lives like Alice um, is living her life. So I agree and I disagree with that intro because I think technically there's 
you see how much growth there is. As you said, this is all about identity. And I think that's possible because she has to build one through mm-hmm. this whole story. It's about deciding who she's going to be, which is, you know, very, I think, relatable to children because as we're getting to that age of self-discovery, we're like, who it, I get to decide all these things. This is overwhelming. This is huge. Who am I going to be? What am I going to want? Where am I going to go? So, yeah. I actually think that this book reads a bit like a fairy tale or a fable. And I, mm-hmm. I think the fact that we start out with a character who doesn't have a name. Um, and even as we progress through through the book, we actually don't know that much about Alice. Like, it's not as though she has some big moment where she remembers her whole life before this moment. Like, she continues, as you said, Chloe, to be a blank slate through most of the book. And because of that, it, it has this fable-like quality And as you were talking about how that can set you up as a writer to play more with character development, I can't help but think that like, that just sort of reinforces my my thought about this fable idea because we have been plopped into this world where it is entirely feasible for a child to more or less design her identity out of thin air because we don't know anything about her and she barely knows anything about herself. She's almost like in a fairy tale story where like a princess has woken up after being asleep for for years and years and, you know, is brought to life with a kiss or something. And that's, of course, a fairy tale that's really hard to get behind now. But it's a similar feeling of like now she's waking up and the whole world is hers. And she, of course, has to go through a lot of adversity to claim that. But I kept thinking about it as a fable while I was reading. I would agree with that. And I it reminds me of, and I wonder if Karen Cushman did this intentionally because these, I believe, are contemporaries of each other. Like the, the everyman plays became very popular in the Middle Ages, I think it was. Um, and these allegorical performances that are literally the one, I think the one that I remember seeing perform was like every man in the second shepherd's play, like. There are these tales, right, that are supposed to be intentionally um, stripped of detail that makes them, you know, highly. This is not a character driven novel in the sense that it's not driven by particular quirks or idiosyncrasies of Alice's, right, which I feel like is a very high contrast to Catherine called Birdie, which has so much voice and so much specifics. You know, Catherine is like she's literally such a, a a memorable, vivid, specific character, yeah. which I think is no surprise that it got made for television, given that. Whereas this one, even though it's set in the same time, it does feel like it's literally all its its themes, its motifs, it's it's supposed to be, I think, maybe a space that's open for you to step into, which what those allegorical plays were originally about, which were like morality plays, like Think about your decisions. Think about what you're doing here in your time on earth. Like it's it's an invitation to introspection and um, an invitation to relate because it feels less like fiction, like you said, and more like, yeah, like like a sort of folk tale or fairy tale that you're much more aware of its themes than its and its mechanics than its character nuances, I would say. Yes, I think that's very well said. I, I also think it's so telling that the first sort of real-time challenge that this character has to overcome is the taunting of a bunch of boys. Because mm-hmm. as I was reading this in 2022 and trying to bring in yep. the context that I'm aware of of the Middle Ages and reminding myself that like 
a woman in this time period had very few options. Just the fact that Jane is working as a midwife is unusual. Like there weren't that many crafts or professions available to somebody like Jane, somebody like Alice. And so the fact that right off the bat, we are seeing this misogyny that's part of the world in which Alice lives, I, I think that that is, uh, again, like we're hitting it pretty hard with this sense of the allegory of like, this is right away, we know what this character is up against. And yes, we can see it on the page as a bunch of boys that are teasing her. But if we take a step back, we realize that it's it's really like a bigger commentary on what it means to move through this society as a, a female identifying person. Well, I mean, it it really hit differently for, for me this time. Like they're drunk and they're chasing her and she has like some line where she's like, I know what happens. Yeah. Like I have to, I have to outrun them. And it really, whew, it was tough. And I think that was why it's very poignant when she finds a way to help Will, you know, when he slips and he's drowning. Um, and it's this, these rowdy boys have just not so long ago been scaring her so much. Like, I wanted to, in moments, like ascribe more, uh, more of like a moral superiority to Alice than I really think there is, because I think what she actually is is she's just very boiled down survival. Mm. This is this is a book about like raw reactivity. Like it's she, you know, the things that make her change, and I think this is why I remember being more drawn toward Catherine Callberry because she felt like she had more agency. But then again. She has a more privileged life, Catherine does, than Alice. You know, Alice is her changes as a character throughout until the very end, basically, are due to external pressures, right? So, like, as I think about when I write a character, I like to find a balance of external factors nudging my characters toward change and growth and uh, epiphanies. And I like my readers to get to see my characters do some work on themselves to have internal conflicts and and growth moments and aha moments and there's there's so much about Alice's experience and what we experience as a reader that's just things happening to her and her barely scraping by you know it really makes you so aware like you're saying of what she was up against and what she's just trying to make it through each day it's pretty raw (laughs) It's extremely raw. And I I think to Lois Lowry's point in the introduction, like, yes, this is a character who wants nothing, expects nothing. And and that is partially to do with the fact that she finds herself in this situation where she literally has nothing. But she doesn't, there's like not that much room for a character like her to want anything else or to expect something bigger for herself. Because even if she did have this clear consciousness about where she's coming from and where she's going... Her options are, again, super limited. Exactly. Well, and you know what? I, Whenever I think about, you know, like young, young women characters um, in difficult circumstances and, and sort of their attitudes, I often go back to Anne of Green Gables as kind of like my, um, my Anne Shirley model. You know, you think about it doesn't make sense for Anne to be as resilient as she is, right? You know, she's had a really tough life, but she just has this indomitable imagination and and because she has an imagination she can believe and reach for things outside of her experience or anything that her experience has indicated will ever happen to her and she achieves some incredible things but that said 
not everybody operates that way. And I think there's something as, as like sort of sad as, as reading Alice's experience was for me. I was like, no, that's, that's human. I've been in seasons like that. I've known people whose outlook on life is that. And when you step back and you look at like, in the beginning, she's literally sleeping in animal dung. She doesn't even have a name. You know, the, the moments that change her as a person are some of the first basic human needs, if we're talking like Maslow's hierarchy, that we say a child needs to thrive, a name, affection, a secure shelter. Like she basically gets a name. She has a huge transformation. She gets to bathe herself, another huge transformation. And like, I get that these are very historical accurate things, but again, they just remind you like when you're stripped of these fundamental humanizing experiences, how could you expect more? Like this, we need this as people. It's like a very visceral reminder because you see how little she expects. But as you say, why would she expect any or hope for anything else? She's been given nothing to affirm that. And the grim reality of her circumstances, I think, hit me harder as an adult. Of course, I can't yeah. I can't fully time travel back to my seven or eight-year-old self, but if I, if I had to put myself back there, I think I was so used to consuming these stories over and over and over again, and they all were a different iteration on the hero's journey. And so as a kid, I was so used to being like, okay, here we go with another kid usually or a teenager who's set up at the beginning of the book, and I know they're going to grow and change and beat some odds, and they're going to have some sort of a happy ending done. And so I feel like I lost some perspective maybe when I was a kid that like, oh no, this is an extremely different starting point for a character. Yeah. I think I was maybe desensitized because I was such a consumer of stories that I was like, okay, here we go again. Like this character is going to, things are going to get better for this character. They're going to fight evil. And and it's a little bit of a different, uh, the stakes are much different in, in The Midwife's Apprentice. Yeah. I mean, it's like, as you say, you get habituated as a young reader. And I'm very aware of this as I'm listening to my 11 year old talk about what she's reading. And, you know, she's even aware herself of like, well, this is the model, you know, there's the adversity, then here's how they're gonna like, decide they're gonna go on their quest. And, you know, so you're, you can become a little bit desensitized. But I think that's good for kids, because it, it shows you that they are sheltered from some of the, the weightier cares and worries that we carry and awareness that we carry as adults, right? Yeah. But it does it does impact you differently. And I I I listened to actually a lot of this on audio. I enjoyed it. Um, I can't tend to listen to books for the first time through audio. I struggle with the audio processing, but I was revisiting because I'd read it a bunch as a kid. It was really interesting just to be aware, a little bit more aware of myself, like my body as I was you know, getting tasks done and listening to this book and feeling the sadness that I felt for this child. Like I just wanted to, I just wanted to yell at Jane yeah. for being terrible to her. This very like old school, tough love, you know, I'll throw you tiny scraps of affection at the very end through like a passive comment that makes you sort of second guess the decision you've made and makes you come back to me like, I was really sad for her, but man, it's, it wasn't something I picked up as a kid at all. I just saw this girl who was like making it through, <laughs> being tough. Yeah. Another scrappy little heroine. Uh, no, look how we, right. we have been so hardened as adults, haven't we, Chloe? <laughs> 
Yeah. We've seen things. Um, So we touched on this briefly already, but I I did want to put a finer point on the name situation. So at the beginning of the book, our main character doesn't have a name. She only ever remembers being called, as I mentioned before, Brat. And then when she is ultimately sort of adopted is not the word that I want to use because adopted seems to imply more love and care than Jane is willing to offer uh, our heroine. But Jane basically takes her in and gives her, as you said, scraps and like only the bare minimum in return for help in her midwifery practice. Um, And she starts calling her Beetle um, as sort of a reference to the fact that she's like an insect to Jane. She's always around. She's a thing to be swatted. But later in the book, and I keep wanting to call her Alice, even though she's not Alice yet, but but later in the book, Beetle is mistaken for another girl in town um, and somebody calls her Alice and, and she realizes that she likes the way the name sounds. And so she adopts it for herself. That is a situation where I think I can use the word adopt. She adopts the name Alice for herself and she takes a lot of pride in it. And later on, she actually helps another orphan go through the same process. She meets this little boy who doesn't have a home, doesn't have a name, and she helps him determine his own name. And and they're going to call him Edward. And the same thing happens with the cat. She decides that she wants to name Jane's cat and goes through this whole process of trying to figure out what his name should be. And they land on Purr, which I thought was really cute. So names are such a central part of this story and of Alice's journey. And I love to talk about names with writers because um, as a writer myself, like I love to play with names. I've always been fascinated by names. Even when I was a kid, I just was curious about where names came from. How do you take all of this in both as a reader and as a writer? This this notion of names being so significant to multiple characters in this book. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much in like the history of our storytelling about like human existence like you know you talk about how even just like the creation story in the christian biblical paradigm like god speaks things into existence he and he gives i know adam and eve the gift of naming things like names for as long as we've known about civilization and like been able to learn about it have had such profound significance you know they were seen as a benediction or a curse uh, they're they're meant to you know, speak something into your life. And I know, I know as someone who named children, I felt an incredible responsibility to like, give them something that I loved that I thought had beautiful meaning that would give them a versatility of like nicknames if they didn't like it. I also told myself I would be willing to let that name go if they wanted a different name, you know, so I think names are such an important part, because it's it's the signal that we use socially to recognize each other. And so in this book, you know, seeing this journey from there's Beetle, there's Brat, and then finally for her to be Alice, I loved how she came upon her name accidentally, because I think that's just so often how good things can happen in life is accidentally. And so I thought it was a good moment where we see for her to choose. She really has to choose it because this is some stranger who mistakes her as Alice. She's never going to see him again. Like, what does it matter? She could have just dropped it, but she didn't. And so I thought it was poignant that we see Alice choose to name herself. And as you say, she gives another child who's had an experience like her that she passes, she pays it forward basically and says, hey, this helped me. Let me help you too. Let's give you a name. Let's recognize you. So 
I, I don't know. As a writer, I think, I think a lot about names as a parent. I've thought a lot about it. And I think Karen does a very good job in the novel of showing her relationship to her name. She cares by the time she calls herself Alice. She, she's not indifferent. And that's part of her journey is to thrive enough to want things and to choose things. And um, I think choosing her name is, is a big uh, turning point in her journey as a character. So I thought it was well done. Yeah, I thought that another similarly poignant turning point was when she actually sees her reflection for the first time. Oh, yeah. Which happens later on after she's been through even more trials throughout this book. Like she's just being tossed from one bad situation to the next until she finally has the opportunity to make some choices, which is really empowering. But right before that happens, she has the chance to actually like take a bath, which I can say I take for granted that it is such a big, meaningful experience for her to be able to wash herself and to get all of the grime off of her body. This is a girl who works really hard physically. So it's not like she's just dirty from hanging out. She's, no. her body goes through hard work every single day. And so she she's able to bathe herself and then she sees herself for the first time. And that was really powerful for me. Yeah, this is something, and don't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and remembering from mumble mumble years ago in college, but my <laughs> focus in college with literature was the 19th century. And a lot of what I was learning about reading the literature was also obviously the history of the time. And, you know, the reigning monarch being Victoria in England, and she married Albert, who was very progressive as folks from that from the the German it was well, he wasn't in Germany what, what was his actual empire anyway but he had very progressive ideas about like hygiene and cleanliness you know getting waste out of um, the streets and soap like he had had this big campaign I remember learning something along those lines it's like soap was inaccessible and when it was starting to be able to be manufactured more cheaply the old wealthy families were like, we can't have this. We won't be able to tell people apart. We've got them starting to dress like us, you know, with the birth of, of the bourgeoisie and the middle class. It's like, they're going to smell good. They're going to look like us. Like it is a fairly recent in the history of civilization concept for everyone to be able to be clean and not stink and be covered in grime. And as you say, like the proof of their work, like it's part of just what you had to put up with. And so the, the sort of dignifying, the humanizing experience of being able to clean, and I think obviously the symbolism of her being able to wash away the grime of everything that she's carried this whole time and sort of, it's a rebirth, right? It's, it's a, a new beginning. Um, I think it's very poignant. And as you say, it's something we take for granted now, but not even back then in, in the fanciest of circles would a, a bath or a cleaning be easier done all the time. You know, it's, it's pretty special. It's very important for her. <laughs> I come back from a long car trip and I'm like, oh, I have to take a shower. I, I which is or flying. Oh my like, gosh. I immediately. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta scrub off the airport. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's just, it's such a perspective check. So one other kind of bigger theme that I wanted to make sure we touch on as we start to wind down this conversation about the midwife's apprentice is failure and how we address our own failures or shortcomings. And I know some people even have a visceral reaction to that word failure, but I do think that that's what Karen Cushman is trying to teach in this book or trying to demonstrate in this book because Alice starts to pick up some momentum in her midwifery training. Even though Jane is not really teaching her how to be a midwife because she doesn't want competition, Alice can't help but pick up on some of 
her teachings. And so there is an opportunity for her to step in and actually help a woman deliver her child when Jane is called away to go assist with the birth of a child who comes from a wealthier family. And Alice feels so good that she's able to to save this woman's life and to save the baby's life that she gets some confidence and she tries to go attend another birth when there's an urgent situation and the results are not as confidence inducing for Alice. Uh, Ultimately, Jane has to come back and set things right herself. And this causes Alice to run away from Jane, from the town. And I I think that there's a part of this that so many of us can resonate with no matter where we are in life. Like there's something about that high, high where you accomplish something maybe that you didn't think that you could ever accomplish or where you just do something really cool and you're feeling really good about yourself. And then so shortly after that, to have your confidence really take a big hit That's a terrible feeling, even if you aren't in dire circumstances the way that Alice has been for her entire life. And then Alice kind of has to figure out how to build that confidence back up. And I think one of the great things about an author like Karen Cushman is that she is not preachy or or moralizing in the way she writes, but you still can't help but learn that kind of a lesson. And I would imagine that kids, no matter when they're reading this book, can walk away from this with just a little shred of like, okay, I've seen this kid succeed, which is really cool. And then I saw her learn some lessons from her failures, which was hard, but still, still cool. Mm -hmm. And then she figured out how to find a midpoint somewhere. Yeah, I do. And I do think, you know, as I was, I went back and looked at the ending, the last chapter, because I wanted to screenshot it. Because it does, as you say, like throughout the book, you're you're not getting moralizing. You're just getting Alice you know, sort of bumping her way along in life and dealing with these adversities. But I think what's cool is because in her transformation, when she has this success, when she saves the baby, right? And then obviously when she has this challenge and she kind of crumbles under that, she's leveled up in terms of what her fundamental existence is. Like failure, quote unquote, uh, used to be for her like, not being able to eat or like thus be able to have any energy to do anything in a day. We know now she has some food to her. She's learned some skills. Now she gets to like level up to, well, she had a setback in terms of her, her professional, you know, or her livelihood. Right. And I think it's, it's a nice leveling up of growth journeys is that you see, this is a little bit of resilience, right? She's learning. And this is literally what she says at the end. She's having this epiphany And Alice's thoughts are, she was not an in-girl or a nursery maid or a companion to old women. She was a midwife's apprentice with the newborn hope of being someday a midwife herself. She had much still to learn, and she knew a place where she could learn it, cold and difficult and unwelcoming as that place might be. That was her place in this world for right now. And though her belly would likely never be full, her heart was content. And then I love this line, that night she dreamt she gave birth to a baby who gave birth to a baby and so on, and so on until morning. And it's just such a a powerful um, metaphor for, I think, a birth of her hope. And then obviously, you know, she goes back to Jane, and Jane's just being tough as always, you know, and she has this epiphany of like, no, I have to, Jane shuts the door in her face. She's like, wait, I have to go back and really say I belong here. And that's, that's how it ends, which I just love. Um, It is I, Alice, your apprentice. I've come back. And if you do not let me in, I will try again and again. I can do what you tell me and take what you give me. And I know how to try and risk and fail and try again and not give up. I will not go away. The door opened. Alice went in. 
and the cat went with her. And I love that metaphor of that when she speaks those words, and this is often, as you see it, say in like fantasies and fairy tales, speaking the words, unlocking a door or some portal, it's a, it's a new moment. She's stepping into this next phase of her life. So I think it's just, it's definitely pretty overt by the end, but it, it packs a good punch because you haven't been hit over the head with these yeah. ideas. You've just seen it playing out so far. Yeah, there's such resilience. There's such resilience. And we finally get to see her making a choice and standing in that choice. Exactly. Which is, of course, all that we could ever hope for from a character who's gone through a journey like this. I really love the language at the end. It's after she says, after she makes a statement, I mean, Jane's standing there at the door. But Jane isn't there in our perception at all. Yeah. It's all about Alice. The the passive structure of the door opened. It wasn't Jane opened the door. She could have said that. That would be true. But that's not what's said. It's the door opened. And it's so much Alice went in. Like there's so much action and like agency finally on page. It's just such a powerful. It's just one of those examples that I love that just makes me like giddy as a writer. It's like that's how you use structure to convey the power and meaning of what's happening, right? I just thought it was really well done. I could listen to you talk about structure and prose all day. So anytime you want to geek out about structure, you let me know. I'm your girl. I'd love to hear it. On the whole, Chloe, how did the experience of coming back to The Midwife's Apprentice as an adult compare to your memories of reading either this book specifically or even Karen Cushman's work more broadly when you were a kid? Uh, I would say it hasn't, it hasn't really changed my sort of thoughts about having read Karen Cushman and how I feel about her just because I think the, the story that sticks out to me most in my Karen Cushman experience is Catherine called birdie. And that book is just like perfect to me. Um, and it was just exactly what I needed. So this is just, again, like I said, one of the stories of hers that definitely stuck with me and I enjoyed, I will say that I think I, in terms of like pleasure, enjoyed it more as a child than reading it as an adult. But as we've discussed, I think that just comes with, I'm a mother, I have daughters, literally her age, I have one daughter, almost, you know, Alice's age. And I'm just aware of, I carry children and the reality of how children in all of their various experiences across the world are living. And it's heavy on my heart. So I think just not being able to put away some of my own real life sadness made my my empathy kind of tug heavily and took a little bit away from just being able to enjoy it, quote unquote. Uh, but I, I, as a writer, was able to appreciate its mechanics and its structure um, and its successes, I think, a lot more. So it was different, not so as pleasurable in some ways, but more pleasurable and gratifying in others this time. Good. Well, I'm so glad that we had the chance to come back to this book together. Thank you for taking the time to read it. Other than The Midwife's Apprentice, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? I have been on a bit of a hiatus with reading because I am on deadline. Oh. But um, a few <laughs> a few books that I have on my radar, one I uh, just finished recently, and it was called Pride and Protest, and that just came out this past Tuesday by Nikki Payne through Berkeley. It is a modern Pride and Prejudice retelling with a really beautiful um, multicultural romance. Darcy's Filipino. He's been adopted by a white family, so he's navigating those complexities of identity. And uh, Lisa, I think is how we're supposed to pronounce her name. She's the Eliza Bennett character. She is working on fighting gentrification. He's a developer. 
She's a black woman living through the complexities of modern life in America as a black woman. And it was just like punchy and smart. I was just geeking out over all the parallels to Pride and Prejudice. So that was really well done. I just started before I let go. And I know that's by Kennedy Ryan. And that is going to be an emotional sucker punch. So I'm I'm reading it in little snippets when my heart can handle the angst, but it's it's really great. Kennedy is a poet. Her writing's gorgeous. And then for your holiday reading, I have to recommend two, which are Just Like Magic by Sarah Hogle, which is just like classic, wonderful, zany, fun romance. The characters, like basically if Paris Hilton fell even more out of grace, played Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You on a Record Backward and conjured the holiday spirit. Oh and then gosh. they fake dated. It's bonkers. <laughs> it's delightful. It's escapist. I laughed. And I absolutely loved um, You're a Mean One, Matthew Prince by Timothy Janowski, which is an, a, a, just an adorable queer um, holiday rom-com. It's got Shit's Creek's vibe. Again, we've got like a uh, sort of fancy son of celebrity who's uh, disgraced and has to go to the small town with his grandparents and falls for the grumpy lumberjack Hector and they like save Christmas spirit in the community. So yeah. And all in all, that's just like magic by Sarah Hogle. You're a mean one, Matthew Prince by Timothy Janowski. Those are the good holiday ones. And then pride and protest by Nikki Payne. And before I let go by Kennedy Ryan. Thank you. I will include links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. Perfect. Even now, as we are recording in mid-November, I've been getting so many messages from people who are like, what are you reading for your holiday reading? What, yeah. what, are, what are we picking up? So those are really great recommendations. And speaking of recommendations, I need to make sure that we are recommending your work, Chloe, to all of our listeners. You have a new book out as we are chatting. It is called Two Wrongs Make a Right out November 22nd. Congratulations. I'd love to hear more about it. What can you tell us? Thank you. Well, I was telling you I love retellings. I loved Pride and Protest as a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. And I wrote a Shakespeare retelling. So Two Wrongs Make a Right is, uh, for those familiar with Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, we've got Benedict and Beatrice in the play, in his original, who are determined, a determined bachelor, determined spinster type, who can't stand each other. And what happens is, of course, because it's Shakespeare, an ensemble cast gets together and makes mischief and decides to trick them into thinking they're in love, but really just realizing they have been in love with each other. They're just terrified to be in love. And shenanigans ensue. And so my take on it was, what if they found out instead of at the end of the play when they're all like, oh, we're in love with each other, no big deal. What if my Benedict and Beatrice characters found out quite early they'd been set up after they made it very clear to their social circle that they did not get along, they were not compatible, but they got tricked into going on a date. Uh, they would not be happy. And so how I've written it is that James Benedict, Jamie, my character, and Beatrice, who goes by Bia or B, they decide they're going to get even and they're going to fake date for revenge. They're going to make their friend circle fall in love with the idea of them falling in love. And then they're going to break up spectacularly at the friend's giving party and just crush everyone and teach them a good old lesson about sticking their nose in people's love lives when they have no business. But of course, this is fake dating. And romance readers out there know they always fake dating becomes real feelings mm-hmm. and they fall in love. Um, and just the specifics, you know, I'm a neurodivergent, I'm on the autism spectrum, and I have a number of chronic conditions. I'm really passionate about writing stories that affirm everyone deserves a love story. And so I write lead characters with realities we don't often see in leads, in especially in love stories. So Via the Heroine is neurodivergent as well. 
she's autistic and Jamie has compulsions and he has anxiety. There's a lot of open discussion of these realities in very affirming, um, loving ways. Uh, we normalize therapy. We talk about it a lot in that story. So that's just really close to my heart. So basically it's a neurodivergent reimagining of much ado about nothing. I think the official tagline is opposites become allies to fool their matchmaking friends in a swoony reimagining of Shakespeare's Much Ado. Oh, beautiful. Again, I could listen to you talk about not only structure, but just like, could you just pitch books to me all the time? I love the way you talk about books, including yours. What a delight. I love everything that you managed to put into your work. Um, it's so impressive and so important. And thank you for representing those stories for readers everywhere. Listeners, go get yourself a copy of Two Wrongs Make a Right. Support local bookstores. Support Chloe's yes. work. And it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed my time. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.